Hey gang, and welcome to a podcast named Scooby-Doo. From Coolsville to Crystal Cove, this is the show that attempts to unravel 50 years of mysteries, meddling kids, and masked villains. My name is Mike Josek, and I'll be your guide through all things ghostly and groovy as I investigate every angle of every mystery and beyond. So grab yourself some Scooby Snacks, fire up the mystery machine, and let's start the show. Yeah! Thanks so much for joining us on this second episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Considering the long road to just getting the first episode out, I'm really excited to be on number two and moving forward. There's some great interviews planned and uh, there should be some good episodes coming up, so stick with us. I think you guys are going to really dig what's coming down the pipe. Before we get to the featured interview this time around, I wanted to take care of a couple of housekeeping items. The first of which is... I'm really surprised and pleased by the positive reaction to the first episode. Uh, I was very happy to see that. You guys have been great. There's been a lot of support, a lot of really nice comments. It's nice to see that a lot of you out there sort of feel the same way about the material that I do and want to take a deeper dive to ask the questions, to find out more about the making and the the behind-the-scenes stuff of these shows. Now, the more popular the show gets, the more it will grow and the more the likelihood of getting guests who want to come on. So keep listening, keep supporting the show, keep on sharing and spreading the word. I'll keep generating episodes, hopefully continue to grow the show. And with any luck, we'll be talking about Scooby-Doo on this show for a long time to come. Now, one of those people who wants to come on and do the show is none other than John Colton Barry, whom some of you would know as the writer, story editor, occasional songwriter on the most current version of the show Be Cool Scooby-Doo. Now John's going to come on and much like Tom's interview last episode, we're going to do an interview. We're also going to do a commentary and right now the default for the commentary is most likely going to be Mystery 101 considering it seems pretty apropos being the first episode of the new show, sort of re-establishing the characters and establishing the new tone So I'm kind of interested to hear John talk about that and get his thoughts on some of those things. But I'm kind of throwing it out to the Scooby-Doo fandom to see if maybe there's another episode in season one that you would rather hear about. John's kind of had his fingers in pretty much every episode of season one, so they're pretty much all up for grabs. I'd probably leave out Area 51 adjacent just because we had Tom talking about that last time. But throw in your votes. Go to the Facebook page. Go to Twitter. Let us know if there's an episode you want to hear more about than Mystery 101, and John and I will consider doing that one. Now, our featured interview this episode is with composer Steve Bramson, who has worked in both live action and animation, doing music for shows like Diagnosis Murder, NCIS, JAG. Uh, He did the music for the Young Indiana Jones movie, Treasure of the Peacock's Eye. In animation, he's done music for 
shows like Tiny Toon Adventures. He did the Tiny Toon Adventures How I Spent My Summer Vacation video, A Flintstone Family Christmas, and also Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Now, as most of you know, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island was kind of the catalyst for this show coming into existence. I watched it not that long ago, and it kind of spurred on this quest to discover more behind-the-scenes information about the production of that show. Steve was one of the first interviews that I managed to snag, and despite having to project back in time 20 years, Steve managed to remember quite a few details, and we had a really good talk about putting the music together for that project and other things that he's worked on and has coming up. Now there were some technical difficulties initially when we were putting this together so the little bit at the beginning is right after we resolved it and that explains kind of the not so soft intro to the conversation but yeah without further ado here is Steve Bramson composer for Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. How's that working? It is working. Okay, good. That's awkward. So, I haven't had technical difficulties like that in a long time. <laughs> oh, it's okay, man. Believe me, I do all the time. So, uh, but anyway, uh, so so I don't forget my my train of thought. You, uh, I told you that um, I got involved because of a of a show I did called Fish Police. And I'm surprised to hear that you had heard of it because most people don't know what that was. Yeah, I was aware of the Steve Moncu's comic book. So when the show was announced, oh. I was like, yeah. Yeah, it was a cute idea. And, I, and you know, music-wise, it was a lot of fun. I was sort of a throwback to this noir jazz kind of thing. And I have a pretty strong jazz background. So it was a lot of fun for me. But it didn't last. I think we did five episodes. And um, it was sort of a – I what happened was I had a friend – uh, another composer who was going to do the show, but then he got called off to do a different show and kind of turned me on to it. And by coincidence, um, James Horner wrote the theme and I had done a couple of movies with him as an orchestrator. So it's kind of weird that we kind of reconnected that way. But, um, but anyway, that's how I got introduced to Hanna-Barbera. I did that. And Bodie Chandler, I mentioned his name. Bodie Chandler was the music supervisor for Hanna-Barbera. He was responsible, sort of the creative uh, business overseer for all things music for Hanna-Barbera. And um, we, you know, had a good relationship on Fish Police. It was, I, it was an introduction of myself to him. He liked my work. And then he started to call me for So, I mean, I did the Scooby-Doo. I did a Yogi Bear thing. I did, I don't know, I did a bunch of stuff for them. Yeah, I think the Yogi Bear was like a couple years before Scooby. It could be, you know, I I I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> it was uh, it was twenty years ago. It was, um, but um, and and I think there were a couple of other things too. But I um, I really liked working with Bodie, and he obviously liked working with me. And they came to me with this uh, Scooby Doo movie, and I do remember him telling me that it was uh, trying to reboot. The, the franchise and the twist, I guess, to their thinking was that unlike in the past where all the villains and monsters were fake, in this case, they were real. That was going to be the new thing. So, uh, you know, I thought that was a great idea. And, you know, they gave me, you know, they put some money behind it. I was able to use a you know, decent size orchestra. Uh, and, um, you know, what size orchestra did you have? 
Well, again, I, it's so long ago, but I'm going to guess it was between 35 and 40. It's still, you know, compared to feature film, it's on the smaller side, yeah. but it's certainly big enough to make some noise and, you know, get the job done. Might Perhaps it, it was a little bigger, but I, that's my guess. Um, so, yeah, that's um, that's how I got involved in it. So when you came to the project, um, what kind of tone were you shooting for? Like the, the movie does bounce around between... Yeah. A number of different kind of genres, I guess. There's the adventure, there's the mystery, there's the horror. Were you given any guidance there or? I'm sure that I did. Uh, and again, I'm recalling this all, uh, you know, as we speak. Um, and I'm not, and I'm sort of just stream of consciousness here, but I do know there were, uh, several songs, uh, kind of rock or pop kind of songs. I had nothing to do with them. They had a relationship with a songwriter or two for a lot of their projects, and they went to them to write them. And it, as I remember, those were written before I got involved. In fact, I know one of the things I was asked to do was the main title needed to segue into that opening song. And I remember that the song began with kind of a drum fill or something. So the music that I wrote ends with a drum fill. Uh, sort of an orchestral drum fill that went into sort of the drum kit drum fill. Right. Um, so that was something that I, I definitely needed to do. I think they wanted to, on the one hand, they wanted to evoke the feeling of New Orleans and the bayou. That was important. That's an important character in the story. Uh, they definitely wanted some kind of a friendship theme, which does, you know, recur several times, a more kind of uh, lyrical, uh, comfortable sort of, uh, theme. And as I said, because they were trying to, you know, make, you know, give the impression that these monsters were real and not just, you know, would pull the mask off at the end. They wanted the music to, to convey that. It wanted, they wanted to be, you know, honest and it wasn't, you know, tongue in cheek and it wasn't, um, you know, much, I guess they wanted it kind of scored like, you know, a live action you know, horror or mystery movie, you know, so some of the cues take on that quality. But as you say, running through this whole thing is the whole history uh, and the whole, um, you know, essence of who Scooby-Doo and Shaggy are. It's all fun and comedy. And, you know, and so I had to also, you know, walk the line and make sure that I was addressing that at times, too. So uh, some of the cues are are kind of silly and fun and energetic and, and the others are more serious, but we had, I'm sure we had lots of discussions, you know, in any of these projects where you're, um, you know, scoring, uh, to different degrees, you, depending on how involved the producer director want to be, you, you kind of go through every scene and every cue and you talk about what they, you know, what it is they're looking for. So I'm sure in this case they did that and gave me lots of notes of what they wanted me to try to do. Did you actually, uh, did you research any of the like older music to? No, no, I didn't, and it wasn't um, wasn't really. It didn't even come into my mind. I think uh, because they really were trying to make this a, a you know like a cold break from clean break from the earlier version. Uh, that wasn't even anything that anybody brought up. I don't think they would have wanted me to do that, and um, and I don't remember doing it myself. You know, I yeah. had I, I had done. Uh, a fair amount of animation. I'd done some for Warner Brothers too, and you know, I I kind of had 
you know, that sensibility of how to, to, to do that kind of thing, the more cartoony kind of music. And I'm sure that Bodie knew that about me. So I, I didn't, I guess I didn't feel like I really needed to research that at all. Yeah, I was a big fan of that Tiny Toons summer vacation movie, by the way. I was yeah. kind of excited to see that you had worked on it. <laughs> I did a little bit of work on that. I think several of us worked on that, but, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun too, that the Tiny Toons, cause I loved, I mean, you mentioned, how you were so into Scooby-Doo. I was very into the Warner Brothers cartoons and you very well might have been too, but yeah. I love, I love that music and I love those cartoons. So that was a lot of fun when I got to do those. Now I was curious, uh, with the live action film being scored, I guess, you know, there's a rough assembly of the movie and the, the orchestra gets to play along with the film. I was mm-hmm. kind of wondering what the process for kind of composing and putting the music, the music together for an animated feature is like. Well, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, hopefully by the time, you know, the composer's involved, the picture's done so you can, you know, watch it and, and, and score to it and play back to it just like you would a live action movie. But, but very often it's not. And what they'll do sometimes is you'll have sequences where you'll just see storyboard. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah. Where they slug it in or they have rough drafts or maybe they'll have the pencil, but the inking hasn't been done. There may have been, I mean, I've seen this on occasion where there may be some number of seconds, hopefully not minutes, where there's just slug put in, you know, blank is the, sh- the shot, scenes aren't shot, but hopefully also those aren't scenes that require music. But j- basically, um, as I recall, you know, the movie was basically done. So I would have a copy at home to work to with everything visually intact. And when we went to the scoring stage, uh, that's what was projected and what everybody was seeing. Um, I'm quite sure that's, that's how I remember it. Uh, how many minutes of music did you, uh, compose and record for the movie? Um, again, I, I don't remember, but I, I'm going to guess cause it's a two hour movie, isn't it? Or uh, I think it's 74 minutes, somewhere in there. 74 minutes. I'm going to guess around 50, maybe 45 or 50 total, but I don't, you know, again, I just don't remember. Um, I remember, I remember there was, uh, there was a lot of music. I mean, animation, well, I mean, this is a generalization, I would say animation often can take more music and does take more music than, than a live action, but, um, that's not always the case. And there certainly were sequences that were left dry that we did not score. But, um, I'd say it was probably around, I'm going to guess around 45 or 50 minutes. Did pretty much everything get used? Yeah, as far as I know. I mean, um, I have my library of music that, uh, from those sessions. And as far as I know, uh, that's everything and everything was used. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I'm not aware of anything that was cut out. And I'm also not aware of anything that was double tracked. You know, sometimes they'll take a piece and use it somewhere else where they decide later they need music, but I don't think that happened. This went down pretty smoothly. You know, all the, all the projects I did with them were pretty, enjoyable you know the people were really good to work with they you know they're often you know animation is a different the people that get involved in animation i think are a little different sometimes than the live action people and i i there's a kind of a lower stress level and more (laughs) fun you know i mean sort of an obvious sort of thing uh so um yeah everything went down pretty smoothly they were pretty much on top of their game i don't remember any snags or any problems at all I heard on that first movie, it was pretty much a hands-off project. They didn't have any expectation for it, so they just pretty much left ah. the crew alone to do whatever they wanted. 
Well, so there you go. You know more about it than me. <laughs> so, uh, well, it certainly came across that way. But I also felt that I didn't get the sense that this that, that people were sort of like, well, whatever. You know, I think people were really committed to it and very took it very seriously. Uh, which you know, and and if it's true what you're saying, it was probably pretty freeing. You know, to just uh, just go with your gut and your instinct. Because so many times in these projects, you get so many chefs and so many people, and there's and there's so much vested in. Uh, they, you know, worry over every little detail that it can end up messing things up or at the very least make everyone miserable. Um, so maybe knowing that they didn't have the high stakes, they were able to just kind of relax and just go with their gut and enjoy it. And I think it's actually a pretty good movie. I actually I I haven't seen any of the other ones. I don't know what they're like, but I thought this is um, a lot. It's funny. A lot of people know this. You know, I get emails sometimes from people about the music or about it, or I run into, you know, kids or friends of my son and stuff. And a lot of people know this particular episode. I don't know why, maybe because it was the first one, but uh, anyway. So I know the first one, because it was trying to relaunch, because it was kind of hands off, it had a slightly longer development process than mm. any of the films that followed. Uh, uh. How long did you actually get to work on the project? Again, boy, you ask me all these questions. I wish I had answers and I don't, I just don't remember, but I, it probably was at least a few weeks. As I remember, it was comfortable. I mean, I wasn't like, you know, we need this next week. I had, I had enough time to, I, I do remember, um, the first thing I did was I, I wrote a couple of themes and I played them for, uh, Davis, the director and, um, and for uh, Bodhi, uh, even before I started scoring anything. And and then once they signed off on that, I began work. It, it probably was around three three to four weeks, is my guess. That, that sounds about right. And, um, you know, given the amount of music, um, that would feel pretty comfortable. I mean, not, not swimmingly, but, you know, but that, that's my best guess. Wish I could tell you more clearly, but I just don't remember. That's fine. Like I said, it's 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of the films afterwards did get official soundtrack releases. Do you know if there was uh, ever one planned? Or I, I did some research and I couldn't find... No. And it's funny because I wish they had. Because I'm, I actually like a lot of this music. And as I say, I get a lot of calls and con you know asking for it. So, no, I'm not aware of it. I don't remember ever a conversation about it. Uh, perhaps for the same reason, you know, maybe they just thought, well, we don't know what's going to happen with this. So they kind of just let it be and then moved on, but it's too bad. But, uh, I don't, I doubt there's, um, I remember, um, there's a, there's a soundtrack company called, um, that's spacing out. La La Land. I'm sorry. You thinking of La La Land? No, no. It's, okay. um, the, the guy who's the guy who runs the company, his name's Doug Fake. And he's done a lot of soundtrack. He released a Jag soundtrack. He's done a lot of other TV and movie soundtracks. But yeah, it's the name of it. it begins with an I. It escapes me at the moment. But anyway, I went to him once about this, and he liked the music. But he, you know, from his perspective, he didn't know that the audience was there. Particularly, it was already some years after it come out, and it just wasn't a viable option. So uh, no, there's no, there is none, and probably will never be. If just hypothetically, if the music was to get released, like would that have to go through Warner Brothers, or is that something yeah. that it would? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they own it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering. Yeah. In some cases, certain rights do revert back to. 
creators of stuff. So I just wonder. Uh, not not like this. Not with yeah. a big studio. <laughs> not, not like a big studio like Warner Brothers. And you know, interestingly, with the with the Jag soundtrack, you know, uh, we pursued that early on when the show was still quite popular, and Paramount just wasn't interested. They just didn't want to play ball. And years went by. They, uh, it's just sort of like they couldn't be bothered. Um, and then years later, this guy, Doug, whose company's name I can't remember, he just kept pressing them. And finally, I don't know if there was a changing of the guard there or whatever, they relented and, and they, they went ahead and did it. But by then, the show, I don't know if it was off the air by then, but certainly it was near the end of its run. So I have no idea whether Warner Brothers would be even be interested. A lot of these uh, studios, you know, they, they're not interested in the small fish, you know, they've got bigger things to go on. So, um, I, uh, it would have to go through them and I'm, I'd be surprised if they even got involved, but who knows, you know, who knows? I mentioned La La Land Records a couple minutes ago. There's a lot of like, um, the DC animated series and stuff, like they released the soundtracks for those and. Yeah. So you never know, you might get a call one day. La La Land. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'll have to check it out because, um, you know, like I say, I think it's uh, I think there's some good music on here and there are some people who might find it interesting. Uh, maybe I'll look into it. I agree. Last question for Scooby-Doo. What do you think is the lasting appeal of this character? He's been around for 47 years, doesn't seem to be going away. Yeah, you know, I don't know. As I say, you know, I haven't watched them. Now, my son has seen, you know, he's a little older now, but... He saw some of the newer, uh, th- there's like a new series version too, I think, right? Isn't there? Yes, there's the new like series that TV? just came yeah. out, yeah. Yeah, I think he watched some of those. And uh, as I say, I haven't seen any of the subsequent movies that they've done. Certainly, I think part of it is that it's just sort of an iconic figure, just like, you know, just like um, a lot of these characters from uh, the Warner Brothers library, like, you know, uh, would it be uh, Bugs Bunny or Elmer Fudd? Or he's sort of a classic character from a little bit later, and um, and it is the only series that I know of that has this mystery component. And I think because it it's um, it's very palatable for kids and young young people, uh, it's the one place where. You know, this kind of is all pulled together. The, there's the, the like this, the sort of the fun, silly aspect of you know Scooby and Shaggy, but also you know you can get some thrills and chills with the mystery aspect. There's really you know I don't think there's any other uh, franchise that's doing that, aiming at that age group. So that would be my my best guess. Those, those things. That's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything that you want to uh, to promote? Anything you're doing right now that's... The only thing I can tell you right now, uh, the last project I did is in Limbo, but I, I can mention it. I, I just finished scoring a, a very nice feature based on the life of the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas called Dominion. And uh, keep your eyes out for it. It's not... They're, they're not done with their post-production yet. But hopefully it'll be coming out soon. It's a good movie, and I'm very proud of the music. So yeah, I saw that on IMDb. John Malkovich is in that, and yeah, yeah, John Malkovich. I can't even remember who else. Oh, um, the the guy who plays Dylan Thomas is um, uh, Riss Eifens. Yeah, he was a villain in one of the Spider-Man movies. And yeah, he's uh, done a lot of stuff. Yeah, Notting Hill. He's a great boy. He was just so so terrific as uh, as Dylan Thomas. So hopefully you'll get a chance to see that soon. Excellent. 
Thanks for asking. Well, it's nice talking to you, Mike, and I wish you luck, and uh, just keep me posted on what's going on. Will do. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. So that was my interview with Steve Bramson, composer of Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Steve was really uh, great to talk to. He was generous with his time, and I really appreciate him coming on. He was one of, if not the first interview that I actually conducted for the show. So big high five to Steve for helping get the ball rolling. I thought it was a pretty good conversation, covered a lot of bases. I hope you enjoyed it too. And for anyone who's interested, just a heads up on that Dylan Thomas film that Steve was talking about right at the end. It's called Dominion. It is making the rounds at the film festivals right now. It was written and directed by Stephen Bernstein. And it features Reese Ifans as Dylan Thomas. And also stars John Malkovich, Rodrigo Santoro, Romola Garay, and Zosia Mamet. So check that out if you get a chance. While not entirely Scooby-Doo related, I am a big Indiana Jones fan, so I couldn't resist talking to Steve a little bit about his music for Treasure of the Peacock's Eye. And that actually got featured a couple months ago on the IndieCast, episode 235, I believe. I'll put a link to it on the show page, and anybody who's interested in hearing the rest of my conversation with Steve, like I said, not Scooby-Doo related, but... Still a good talk about music, film scoring, and Indiana Jones. So, you can check it out there. And that officially brings this second episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo to a close. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Steve and didn't mind my rambling too much. I said this was going to be a shorter episode, and as you can see, we're probably going to clock in at about 25 minutes here. Always eager to hear what you guys think of the show. Uh, Any suggestions, comments, feel free to hit our Facebook page. We are facebook.com ScoobyDooCast. We are on Twitter also at uh, ScoobyDooCast. You can email us. Our email address is scoobypodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram as a podcast named ScoobyDoo. The show is also available on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, a podcast named ScoobyDoo. And we post uh, all the shows and the uh, interview previews on there as well. So go and check that out. Spread the word. Share with your friends and family. Share with your enemies. I don't care. As long as people are listening, I'm happy. And if you get the show off of iTunes, feel free to go on, rate and review the show. Higher the ratings, better the reviews, uh, the better we are in the podcast standings and the more people can see the show and the Scooby-Doo dominion of the podcastosphere can begin in earnest. So... Feel free to share the love over there on iTunes. Also, sometime in the very near future, I'm going to be posting the commentary-only version of the Area 51 adjacent Tom Conkle commentary without the interview bits at the beginning and the end, just so that people can click on that. Just play the commentary uh, with the episode, either you know on their phones, with the headphones, or on the computers while they're watching, uh, just so they don't have to like, just so that it's a little bit easier to time out and has a little bit more of that special featurey feel. So thanks for joining us. Stay cool and we'll see you next time on a podcast named Scooby Doo. We noticed when the ghost appeared. She flew around instilling fear. Exactly how she did was still unclear until we saw the broken flight rig of the balladeer whose name is Kyle! 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 Kyle!
addition to the art of mystery solving dictation. And here's what the bad guys say when they play where the law forbids. What a kind of way with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling kids. This is how we solve the mystery. Bye.